Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, everybody. Hi. Recording live from somewhere. What's good, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Skates and Plates on the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brandon Verwick. He a lot to get to after a two-game miniseries against the Vancouver Canucks, a pair of wins for the Jets. We'll break it all down this episode. But first, reunited, and it feels so good. Come on. Reunited, because we know oh, nothing, nothing. Well, the reason yada, we're yada, yada, yada. is the gang is back together again. Super pumped to have back on the boys from the Big Show, formerly known as the Big Show, Jim Toth and Troy Westwood. What's going on, boys? Howdy, fellas! Thanks for having thanks for having us. I uh, I never thought I'd ever say that I missed you guys, but I kind of missed you guys. So this is going to be fun. Good <laughs> to see you too. No food, dear. I know there's all kinds of skates up coming, but still no short of plates here for Big Rig and I, huh? That's right. Also, it's funny you mentioned that because I was going to ask before we get into what we've been up to over the last little bit. Have you guys done any more cooking over the past couple of weeks since the reckoning happened? <laughs> Mom's been cooking. We had a, a base, basically a world class chef uh, living with us and our, our son in law here for a bit, and he's taught us well, and she's been taking good care of me, fellas. Uh, and I've been cooking just the same amount, same overcooking. <laughs> <laughs> so uh i cook it a little bit yeah i mean um it's funny since the reckoning as you called it uh i think the first week just sort of flew by and you sort of go okay well i'll make some plans and we'll see what happens and you wrap everything up with our former company but then this week is the week where you're sort of sitting around and and you know there's lists to do and there's things to do but cooking hasn't been uh at the forefront of it but i have been partaking in more meals that is for sure <laughs> <laughs> so then I want to know, because I guess you guys would definitely be in like the beginner's class in terms of like actually cooking meals. What's your, like if you, if you were on a cooking competition or something, what would be your go-to meal that you yourself actually cook? Wesley, go ahead. You probably cook more. Ribs, like, well, yeah, I'm very basic though, man. Like a salt and pepper ribs. There's no sauce. I cook them for about five, six hours, man, to 275. There's no fat on them. They're lean as the Dickens and tender as all heck. So yeah, I'd, I'd have to wow them with a real plain rib, salt and pepper, pretty bland and, and some basic veggies, man. I ain't working with a whole lot, but yeah. I'll be <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big barbecue guy. So I'll, I'll barbecue. Like there's nothing better than a T-bone, but figured. we do obviously steaks. 
a lot of uh, boneless chicken, stuff like that. And uh, once in a while, we'll throw some hamburgers together. If it's uh, if it's like a pasta meal or something, which I'm a huge fan of, uh, my girlfriend usually concocts those things and does a much better job at it than I could ever do. So, uh, but if it comes to the grill, like I'm on it, I'll, I'll barbecue, and and that's sort of my thing to do. And and I that's my favorite meal is a barbecued steak with, uh, you know, some fixings. So. All right, but that's well, very we'll, basic. We'll, we'll work on your your kitchen skills. Maybe sometime down the road, I'll have have you guys over when everyone's uh, when either restrictions are lifted or we're all vaccinated. We'll we'll figure out a way to get you guys at least a couple different meals under your two belts. Okay, and that means you finally feeding us, right? Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's essentially you yeah. just hear some some dishes, hear some food, we'll get together. It's been I don't know two weeks, pretty much two weeks now. What have you guys been up to over the last little while? Yeah, not not a whole lot of stuff, man. Just kind of trying to find routine. You know, it was so routine based for the ten week and stuff like that. With eighteen years of bombers, which was big time routine based, and then our job, which creates you to to have to be routine based. I just I need to find get into that sort of vibe again. So just working the sort of the routine, coming to an understanding. I feel inherently like I should be doing something right away and just sort of chill out a little bit and let the dust settle. But more or less my days outside of the six to 10 specifics, my days aren't much different. I guess like I'll sleep in now till 7.38 sort of thing and then get my day going and the workout in first thing in the morning like that. But my day's not much different outside of, outside of what we were consumed with from six to 10 AM. Yeah. And my, I'm much the same. Like the biggest thing is, is, I mean, it's a pandemic. So there's still things that you, I don't know what we could be doing or would be doing, but I'm still in that mindset. The biggest thing for me is I always thought I'd sleep in, but obviously when you lose your job, there's a little stress in that. And so I haven't slept in at all. I I don't sleep at well uh, to begin with. So uh, the routine is a little different. And then, like I said, the first week just flew by Uh, this week is, is sort of slow and you wonder how you keep busy and all that. Um, But then I've made the plans that I, 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 you know, should have been doing already, but so I'm going to get back working out and going to do all these things to fill the time and um, do that. But the actual routine of it, I think we all think, and, and even people we work with during the, at other places in the same hours think, oh, we're going to sleep in and it'll be great. But um, I think Wesley touched on it a little bit there. I, I find that because you have this time, you feel like you should be doing something and that sort of stresses you out a little bit because you're not doing anything. Um, and that's sort of like vacation too. Like if you ever take two weeks vacation, I think by the second week, I'm like, well, I should be doing something to keep busy and keep occupied. And then you sort of just like, well, because you want to take advantage of stuff. So I think it's just been good also just to breathe, relax, sort of go, okay, we've got some time and then take your time to make a plan. So we'll see what next week brings, but that's sort of the routine of it hasn't changed that much. I'm still getting up real early. Um, but I think eventually there'll be a sleeping well wake up hopefully one day and go, holy crap, it's two in the afternoon. That was awesome. So I, I two things stood out to me. One is that you touched on the gym there. Because I wanted to go at a earlier time to make sure basically nobody else was there, I actually did my first workout in forever at 4.30 in the morning. What? Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. First and last. First and last. And that wasn't because you were out all night and wanted to get it done before you went down? It was just the dumb. Like, I'm so dumb. And that was one of my dumber ideas. So that that was – I haven't even looked at the gym since then. And I'm still trying to figure out – I just – it wasn't a good plan. Uh, But the other thing is, caught up on WandaVision, 
Have you guys seen WandaVision? Because I'm pretty sure this is now exclusively going to be an MCU podcast moving forward. I'm completely hooked. I don't even know what that is, brother. Oh, my gosh. Westy. <laughs> I know I know. Not into the superhero stuff. I saw it was Marvel superhero stuff, so I'll do that when I'm 80 still, guys. I'm still in on the, the superhero stuff, so I have not, though. All right, that's all right. Well, why don't we get to the game? That's what everybody really is here for. But it's great to hear that you guys are doing good so far. A big win, a roller coaster game for the Jets on Sunday night. And then they had the win a couple days earlier, a much more comfortable affair. But the big story going into last night's game the forward lines get a complete redo with Pierre-Luc Dubois coming in. Didn't seem like a lot of people were, I guess, super happy with how it was reconfigured. Pierre-Luc Dubois is, you know, brought in to solidify depth down the middle. He immediately goes out there on the wing. And then that line has themselves a game. And Dubois ends up scoring the OT winner. I'll start with you, JT. What did you make first, just specifically, of the top line, Shifley, Wheeler, Dubois? And how did they look last night? Well, I thought it was, you know, when he, he mentioned Paul Maurice said that, you know, you know, he's not going to be a career left winger. But I, I was surprised he put him on the top because he was, quote unquote, easing him back into the lineup. But then I thought, man, if you want to get a guy, you know, going on, on, on the wing and do it with Shifley and Wheeler. I thought the game before that, when Shifley and Wheeler went back together, there was just as much fever from people. And um, and I understand why and, and the net effect and everything else. But uh, I think he wanted to turn some things around. So. I was a little bit surprised to see Pierre-Luc Dubois on the wing. I was more surprised to see him up with Shifley and Wheeler. But then as the day rolled on, I'm like, well, that's just kind of genius, too. If you're going to bring in a really high-end guy and you want to ease him in, you play him with probably your two best offensive players. And I saw the same fever you saw about it. And, and you know me. Like, I, I see this stuff and I think about it. And I, whether I agree or disagree, I sort of always want to wait to see how it plays out. I didn't see a lot of people who thought it was insane weighing in after – he put up three points and, and Wheeler had three points as well. So I thought it worked. I, I think you might see it again, maybe, but uh, against Montreal, I don't know. But I think it's an option. You know, guys, I, the biggest thing I take away isn't that game or Pierre-Luc Dubois on the left wing. From so far, 18 games, and I'd like to get your guys' opinions too, is I think he's looking at some stuff, whether it's through necessity or whether it's through this is a different season, a shortened schedule. I said earlier back when we had the show, I think by game 40 is when you're going to start seeing what he hopes to go into a postseason with. Up until then, I think he's more open than mixing and matching like this. So I was surprised like everybody else. Um, but but I wasn't sort of surprised at the result. These are three high-end skilled players playing together. Yeah, and, and I was – I just – I'm just mystified as to why, like I, what Thompson was uh, – or Lewis was out there for five minutes of even strength, that fourth line hardly – really getting out there at all. And I just, I just, I don't understand even when he was back in the early stages of this, of just sort of, sort of um, molding and getting the chemistry down and sort of having the overall approach of going with four lines here. I, I'm, I don't believe that the very most is being made of the personnel that you've got for that max impact to be able to roll four lines and the way you could just mulch teams with that. So I'm just sort of sitting back watching that and, and seeing him load up as he's doing and, you know, they're getting away with it. They're accomplishing what, what they're doing here, but boy, Dubois sure looked good. Huh? I, I was surprised yeah. watching the interview. He's a big cat, man. Holy smackers. Yeah. And the way he overtime there, the way he just sort of forced himself 
inside there was was something to behold for sure. So I, I, I'm really intrigued to see what Paul Maurice ultimately does long-term as the season continues in his utilization of the deepest roster he's ever had. Yeah, and that's what stood out to me about that line just as a whole. Is that they're big as hell. Like, those are three big – I mean, Shifley is the smallest, right? And you're talking about yeah. six, two, two bills, something along those lines. So that that's what stood out immediately watching those three out there together. And then, I mean, Dubois, he kind of – Jets fans might not like this, but he kind of reminds me of Kevin Hollywood Hayes, but with a little <laughs> more speed, especially when he's rocking the 13. I, yeah. I, I just thought he was tremendous, and I was intrigued by the line. I wasn't necessarily, you know, upset or, or frustrated by giving those three a look, but I I can understand Paul Maurice wanting to just see what those three can do together because, in theory, I mean, Lowry and Cobb have worked together as the third line in the past. You would think Stasny, Ehlers, Connor. I mean, how many how many better second lines would there be in the NHL, or at least how many more explosive second lines would there be? Not a whole lot. The one issue that you touched on, Westy, there is the fourth line. Maybe you don't need a fourth line that plays 10 minutes a night if the top three lines are playing 20 minutes each or, or somewhere in and around there, and then you take special teams time on top of that. I, I don't mind the experiment. I don't think it's going to be something that they, if they make the playoffs, they go into game one with. But I'm okay for the next little bit seeing what Pierre-Luc Dubois can do with Mark Shifley. And on top of that, not going to be shocked either if – Dubois ends up centering a line with Nick Ehlers two or three games from now. I, I do kind of agree, and maybe you can touch on a, a little more, JT, but that, you know, it's not like the Jets have a playoff spot wrapped up right now, but Paul Maurice is going to tinker and choose how things look up front, a little more limited on the back end, but is, it, is there maybe a bit more reasoning to, hey, don't jump on every single forward lineup we see because we might have a different one Maybe once a week, it feels like. Well, and I think that's the case. And I get it. Like, I think fans, you know, want to see stuff work, want to see things stay the same. But if you look around the league, there's a lot of mixing and matching going on uh, as well right now in the season. The fourth line is interesting. Like, I saw some people on Twitter going, you know, down to nothing. You're not going to score without Harkins and Veselainen on the fourth line. And that's probably true. But I looked it up. Like, Harkins and Veselainen have one point between them in 20 games. Trevor Lewis has three in – in uh 18 games himself. So, look, it didn't matter who was on that fourth line yesterday. Paul Maurice isn't a coach when down 2 nothing. that that fourth line is going to see more than five minutes anyway. If he's up 2 nothing, they're going to see a little bit more. But down 2 nothing, I don't care who was on that fourth line. They weren't going to see more. He was going to ride that top end as he does when they're trailing um, after one. But the mixing and matching, there's just been a couple times, guys, he's referenced that this year where he said, you know, we're going to look at this, we're going to look at that, and 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 Westy's bang on when he says, you know, he's never had a deeper lineup, and I think that's the mad scientist in him. I think a lot of the times throughout his time here, he sort of stayed with people more than he wanted to or maybe just because he didn't have other options. Now he has options, so I think he's figuring some, some stuff out. Um, I mean, that's the great question is going into Thursday against Montreal – I mean, it doesn't look like Dubois needs any more time to get ease back in. Do you not leave that line together? Or do you put him down the middle and try some other things? And I'd love to get your guys' thoughts. One thing I don't think is talked about enough is in one of the switches this year is Connor and Ehlers together. And it didn't matter if it was Stasny in the middle or somebody else. I just really liked that first game at Edmonton when Connor and Ehlers were together. And they were just, 
you know, Ehlers' defensive game clearly going to help Connors. And then whoever the center is, is going to be, you know, if it's Stasny or if it's Dubois better defensively as well. But that speed of Ehlers and Connor together, I think, is something that people haven't really talked enough about. Now, they didn't have a good game Sunday night. I didn't like either Connor or Ehlers' game Sunday against the Canucks. But in Edmonton and the game prior, those two together look dynamic if they can get a, a center with some chemistry. The only thing that I don't I don't like in the mad scientist sort of approach is that you know, you're knocking on a third of the season being done. You're going against teams, not so much in the North Division, but once you get to the big boys of the Knights and the Avs, you're dealing with teams that there's just a certain cleanness. And even if you want to think about, start thinking about possibility of getting to the cup and the, like the how well oiled the teams are once you get into the playoffs, I, I maybe he's going to go top heavy, right? And maybe that's going to be a big focus on the, the top three lines. And you're just going to run them through. But fellas, it seems to me when playoff time comes and the cup comes that typically those lines that are the deepest are the ones that are most successful. And when you're talking about chemistry and, and honing those lines and getting the very most out of them, I don't know why you're going mad scientist right now when to me you should be dialing things in and really honing in things to get the best four lines you can get come playoff time. I, I don't think they're very far away. So do you guys think that maybe, and I don't know if it'll happen against Montreal, but if you're talking like playoff matchups, maybe against Montreal, you go four deep down the middle and you can kind of match up the same way the Habs are employing their lines where it's basically one over the other after the boards. But if you play Toronto, you can stack it up a little bit because they're stacking it up a little bit on their own. And that maybe it's almost a little bit like a, a chameleon sort of a lineup. You can throw the guys out there depending on what you're opposed to. Look, this is our lineup and we're not changing it no matter who we play moving forward. What do you think, Wesley? Well, I think if you're playing like a team like Toronto, who gives so much ice time to their top two lines, are you going to be like, would you have Lowry, a spiffed up Lowry line to go up against one of those top two lines and trying to shut them down anyway? You know, when you're talking about, or like, would you be relying on Shifley and whoever else that you'd have out there just from a matchup and a, and a minimizing the damage those top two lines can do? And then how do you best take advantage of their third and fourth lines when they're on the ice? Would it not be to have the strongest third and fourth lines that you can? I, it's, I know it's, there's a whole lot of uh, style, right? Like what kind of style do you like or or the construction of teams and lineups? And I just love teams that are solid and strong, four lines deep. I think that's such a nightmare to deal with. And in a situation against a, a team like Toronto, Edmonton, where they are big time top heavy, I think having four super thick, scary lines would just be an unstoppable situation for those teams. Yeah, and I, I think you know, some of the things we've seen he's going to have in his back pocket. Like it might not be against Montreal or for two games or the first two against Toronto, but at some point you're going to see Dubois back on that wing. At some point, I think he's going to keep that note and move that up top there. I think it's just, you know, as Westy says, I think come playoff time, you you sort of got to go with what you go with. And if Vestline and Harkins haven't come around to being offensive threats on that fourth line, fourth line if those kind of guys with Perot are, are giving up a little bit too much, you're just not going to see a lot of ice. And he's just going to go into a playoff run trying to win with three lines. The the matchup I like about Toronto is if you can put three solid lines out, because as Westwood said, they, they ride those two top two, and you can mix in a Lowry line with your top two lines, I think that's a good matchup. The Montreal one is interesting because 
you know, they're not scoring the past six games. I think they're two, four and one or two, four and two and, and haven't scored more than two goals in a game that way. Um, so they're interesting from their start. I'm very intrigued by these two game series and, and how much you're going to see them next month. But I wonder, like, I, that's my biggest question going forward right now is Dubois going to be on that wing Thursday night or is he going to be down the middle and you sort of match what Montreal has down the middle um, and go that way? Uh, that's going to be interesting for me. But I, I think we're going to see a little bit of everything, like I've, I've already said. And I think by game 40, you're going to start seeing some more patterns of um, uh, repetitiveness among the line combinations till then. I don't know. Like, I mean, even the fourth line, like it wouldn't surprise me at one of the two games against Montreal that like a Harkins and a Vest line and come back in and, and see what they can do as well. Well, let's stick with the top line for now. And I'll just start simply here with you, JT. Is this the best Mark Scheifele has ever played in the NHL? You know, I'm trying to, the only thing I could compare it to that would be better would be that playoff run in 2018 where he set the record for road goals and um, they went all the way to the Western Conference Finals. So um, he is at a never, another level offensively, for sure. Um, defensively, I think he is better in some games. Um, but he clearly is a man possessed. And maybe that's the best sort of way to look at it as a rookie. Uh, or not as a rookie, but as his vet at this age. He's sort of come in. He's made himself an all-star. And now it's one of those, you know, we talk about Pierre-Luc Dubois, but you know, some of those plays with the stealing of the puck on the breakaway, the down low play behind the net that allowed Wheeler to get the puck and pass to Pierre-Luc Dubois for his first goal on Sunday. He's, is he not, is that not a power as opposed to maybe just a, a really good, you know, scoring center to do that kind of stuff. And that's kind of the stuff that I think we've all been waiting to see more of is just the physicality, the, the battles along the boards or behind the net. So I'll say it is. I, I think in, at the start of any regular season, this is the best I've seen him Play, and it's the best I've seen him play since 2018. Westy, would you agree that this is either either playoff safely or what we're seeing right now? This is pretty much the peak of of what we've seen him play in a Jets jersey. I don't know, fellas. That first goal yesterday. Oh, what was he doing out there defensively? I know he's he's fantastic as he always is offensively, but. Has anything really happened defensively, which is where the criticism has been sort of growing and, and ongoing? I don't now know that I've seen a whole bunch defensively from from him to change my mind that he's taken that step or is heading in the right direction that way, fellas. So I, he's there's no question what he does offensively. He's still getting caved in pretty good. That his line and and you know his uh, his overall what he's uh, you take some chunk some any sort of sample size of number of games and that sort of thing. I don't know that they're, that they're controlling play or winning the battles out there as far as um, typically the, the guys that are on his line yet. So I, I just, I, I need uh, sort of a, in a little bit of a Missouri state here for me with Mark Shifley fellows from an overall sense and certainly defensively that he's got to show me, he's got to show me he's there. There's no questioning. No one can question his offensive prowess, but the whole defensive question mark to me is a big one. Yeah, you, you would be a hard ass of a teacher. I'm glad I didn't have you in high school, Westy. I mean, I mean I, look, he's never going to be a perfect defensive player, and he's never going to be confused for somebody up for the Selkie or anything like that, but I think it has improved over the past couple of weeks at least. You know, nothing earth-shattering, but just to where he's – and it's, it's a low bar, sure, but good to below average defensively. Like, I think he's somewhere around there, but – 
when the offensive production is where it's at right now, like you can outscore a little bit of your defensive woes. That was that was the worry, you know, with Shifley, Wheeler, Connor in the passes. They were they just weren't outscoring teams when they were out there. But now Mark Shifley's line is doing Shifley- that because you know they're they're scoring at such a prolific rate, and he's on. It's funny too because he's on pace for what like a hundred points in eighty two games, and he's like the fifth best center in the North Division. But go ahead, Westy. I just wonder have they have they done that yet? Have they equaled things out for when Shifley's the center of the line as far as the net effect? I I know his like possession numbers are are nothing great as far as that sort of thing goes. So I I, I think it's still a work in progress for him to have a. I know he scores in, in bunches, man, and, and, they, and they're pretty dynamic that way. But I, I just wonder, ultimately, can they, when they're out there with the very best of the upper echelon teams, can they win those battles? Yeah, I, I think well, he has improved a little bit this year uh, on that. I think there's still room for improvement, but I'm I'm with you, Brent. I don't think he's ever going to – like, I think if we're all waiting for this big Patrice Bergeron to come into Mark Scheifele's game, it's just not going to happen. Um, but if you can get games like Sunday night where for all be, all means that first goal, he could have done better on. But when you, you are in on three more, like that's kind of – and then if you have three or four games where you don't give up that goal and then you do it again, I mean, that's kind of – I'll live with that with Mark Shifley. I mean, every other aspect of his game, though, like he's more physical. Um, he, he's, he's skating faster or as fast as I think we've ever seen him. Um, and his vision on the ice as well, like some of the passes he's making. Um, I, I just think he's, to your question, if, if it's not the best, then it's as close to 2018 playoff run as, as we've seen. And I think he's going to have just a, an outstanding season by the looks of things. Let's move over now because it wasn't all great in the game, despite the comeback, despite the lead. They did blow it. And we'll start with you here, JT. The penalty kill is odd to me because it's up to 12th of the NHL right now, which is exactly where you want it to be. But, oh, man, the last goal against was the prime reason why people have hated the PK under Paul Maurice for a couple seasons now. I I mean, I I guess kind of talk to us about what you saw on that goal. But just as, as a whole here, are you feeling confident with where the PK is at or is it maybe a little bit of smoke and mirrors right now? Well, the reason I don't, I'm not as down on the PK as I have been in years past is because the teams are playing, like the Edmontons, the the even Vancouver's got her. Uh, I mean, it doesn't show statistically, um, but the teams they've played have a deadly power play. And I mean that I know what you're talking about that last one. It just because the puck was there when Pedersen misfired, and they just were too sunken in and couldn't get it, and he got it back again, and then absolutely tattooed that one. Uh, it's 12th in the league. Now you're playing the same six teams over and over. So you're probably going to figure some stuff out, but I can live with that. If it's, if it's, you know, 10, 12, even 15, I I think that's good enough to win games. If it goes into the bottom half of the league, then I think you have concerns, but given where it was, and it's been dead last at points in the previous couple of seasons, I I think you'd have to be happy with where it's at at 12th. And we've, we've talked about this for years, right? Nothing's changed stylistically. And just watching the structure of that PK, I know that they're, and you know, they, they've got times in past seasons where they float up a little bit and then kind of come back down. And I wonder if, you know, if so long as they can stay above 15 sort of thing, that's great. But just watching how passive it is, man, drives me nuts. I, I'm sort of the same way as you with it, Wicks. And they're just tight and down low and passive and, and letting guys standing in those wicked, dangerous parts of the ice there, just on the 
on the tips of home plate and rifling it away and rifling away, moving the puck with ease and rifling. It just feels so passive that it, even if it's successful, if they end up, you know, 12, 10, 11, somewhere in there this year, it's still going to bother me. Even if they're successful, the way they approach the penalty kill is still going to bug me. I just don't like the structure of it. Yeah, I agree. And it's kind of funny too, because Morrissey takes the penalty there late. Uh, Pullman was hurt. So they're down a couple defensemen. And the talk was, oh boy, it's tough for the PK. It doesn't matter who's out there on the PK. It's the same problems when it doesn't work. And you touched on it there, big rig. I mean, Pedersen gets one whiff at it. Okay, you dodged a bullet there. Maybe just slide over a little bit or or at least add a, an inch of pressure. But then they say, oh, you're, you're, have another go at it. Their best player another dangerous opportunity. And it doesn't matter if the Vezina winner's in the net. Like, he's eventually going to find a way to bury the puck there. And I think me and Westy, I, I, I mean, all three of us are probably in agreement, right? You just can't, you can't kill penalties that far back, giving that much time and space to the best players in the NHL. Yeah, and I mean, that was at the end of it, too. Like, I'm not going to make excuses for it. I, that play, it was your opportunity to get that puck out. And they just didn't, but... Uh, six on four again, and and just it's too bad. He, he Lowry, I think it was, couldn't get that stick on that. But uh, you know, I, I knew Pedersen could shoot the puck, but that was an absolute cannon. Like that kid can just that heater. And then, but it's a PK that I think you know is designed to sort of get in lanes. And we always hear Maurice say good sticks, get sticks in lanes. Um, but then, I mean, they count like the whole team does on every aspect of the game. They just count on Connor Hellebuck. They count on Connor Hellebuck to make those saves. And that was just one that I don't think anyone can blame him for. It just absolutely rifled it past him. That was, I'm still, I woke up this morning thinking about that Pedersen shot. It was just an absolute rocket. Kept you awake at night? Is, is that what we're... Didn't keep me awake, but I woke up and I just thought, what a great shot that was. I was just, okay. I, I, was, I was wondering if you're going like big rig after dark there. I was a little worried which direction you were trying to take us, but that's okay. <laughs> um, let's move on past the game now. Enough about Vancouver. And I know we touched on this here. You're a big fan, Westy. All right, what would be the word you would use going into this series against Montreal? If you could just pick one word, how are you feeling about the Jets headed into two straight games the first time this season they're going to play the Habs? I suppose optimistic would come to mind, and especially because of the recent struggles here of the Habs. Optimistic, but that's a, maybe test would be the best word for me, test. Like, I know that the Habs are in a bit of a funk right now, but by nature of the way that they play and the likelihood of them finding the answers necessary to get back on back on track here, I think it's just going to be a great test. And, and they, they play a very disciplined game. And I, I'm really intrigued here to see this structure, this level of structure here. And they're about the only team in the North, right, that bring this to the table, that, that this kind of a game. And it's a little bit more reflective of what the Golden Knights and the Blues and the Bostons play. Like they're more in that sort of a track, certainly, than anything the Leafs or the Canucks or the Oilers are going to throw at you sort of thing. So the test of the Habs is going to be a bunch of fun to watch. And just this here, if, if they could get back on track and how disciplined the Jets can be here and a bunch of things that they're doing, they're st they still have a propensity to sometimes get a little bit like oosey goosey out there in the early stages of yesterday's game, certainly that was what they looked like. 
And I think with the discipline and the forecheck of the Canadians, if, if you're going to bring that to the table and some of the struggles that the Jets have coming out of their zone sometimes is breathtaking. And with the forecheck of the Habs, it could be that much more difficult for them. So it's the, the test here is what I'm most intrigued of. Yeah, and I, what you said there at the end, Wester, is what I, I'm intrigued by. I think that's the best word to describe these two games. I, I think the Jets sort of with Dubois back in the lineup now are, are healthy once again. Uh, or where they, you know, need it the most. So, I, and the way Montreal's playing, I'm just intrigued. Like, I'm intrigued by how these forwards will play against Montreal's decor, which I think is arguably one of the best in the North. Um, well, the best, I would say, right now, after watching Calgary play. I don't like Calgary's five, six guys this year. But uh, the forwards against the defense, the goaltending battle, and then just the depth of, of the forward lines. I, I, I said at the start of the season, I don't know how Montreal's going to score. And then they started the season scoring seven and eight goals a game. Um, and that's dried up now. They can't score more than two goals a game. So I think people see you on film. It's intriguing because they haven't played each other. And, and I think that Montreal's running into teams that have played them. And then, you know, they see the film and they sort of take some things away from them that they, the creative ways of scoring, I think, is where maybe I thought they would struggle with. So I, I'm intrigued by this. I, I, I could see these games being 2-1 very easily. I could also see these games being 5-2. Um, maybe 6-2 as well. So I'm intrigued by the matchup for sure. And and given the way that both teams are playing coming in. Yeah, I'm going to go with scared. I'm scared, <laughs> boys. I'm a little worried about this. It hasn't been a kind matchup in the past, right? And that was when Montreal was much weaker as a team overall. But they've certainly shored up, especially up front this year. I, I just think it's a, a – aside from what they bring to the table – and the emergence of Suzuki, the emergence of Anderson to fully scoring a thousand goals. I just think matchup wise, it's really, really rough for the Winnipeg Jets. And I, hey, if, if they can find a way to even split, but if they if they show themselves, you know, play toe to toe with the Habs, I don't know, guys. How could you not feel confident about their playoff chances? At the very least, to go to the top four, right? Like to come out of the North Division. Toronto's been outstanding. Montreal, like you said, Jim is, has fallen back here. But if they could, if they could even get three out of four, get three out of four points against Montreal here, then things get kind of spicy heading into the stretch run, don't you think? Well, it's been Montreal's speed in the years past, right? Like it's been even when they weren't a good lineup, it just seemed like the Jets couldn't keep up the pace. So that's going to be intriguing to me as well. If that's the same, or or things have changed for Montreal there. I'm really intrigued. And, and we talked about this, um, or I talked about it to start the season. Carey Price has an 893 save percentage. And he was at 900, 909, and 893. He had one year in the last four. I think he was at 918. But he's struggling, man. He's got a, he's, he's there, they're winning games with him, playing at that level. But I'm really wondering where Carey Price is at and what's going on with him. And, you know, is he going to be able to sort of reestablish himself here between the pipes for the Habs? It's, they're absolutely like Jake Allen's playing lights out, but but watching Carey Price and keeping track of what he's doing out there, something to keep an eye on. You know, Carey Price is junk. He's always been junk. He'll always be. <laughs> you know, and you guys know how big I was on Carey Price coming into the season, but I, you know, it's been kind of five years in the making. I I think we have to retire the Jesus Price handle. Like he's just not the guy he was anymore. Or it's it, like it's just the kind of the cold situation. I mean, Jake Allen's outplaying him, let alone how many starters across the NHL right now. So, I mean, it's weird, 
going into a Canadiens matchup that, wow, hey, the, the Jets can take advantage of goaltending issues for Montreal while the Habs are like, we can score in bunches now. It's what we've done for most of the season. We'll find a way to get it done against Winnipeg. I uh, do want to you know touch on funny? some. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just want to mention like my hockey news came this week and they ranked the goaling tandems. And Montreal was number one with Price and Allen. And then number 10 was the Jets and Bersois. And what they said about the Jets was Bersois is the unknown. So we don't really know. And I'm wondering how you'd revisit that now because Jake Allen is just so good for Montreal right now. Prices and, and Bourgeois has been having an outstanding year. And I think Connor Helmick's been having a really good year. So just watching the goaltending rankings in that magazine this week, I was like, yeah, like number one, Montreal, number 10, the Jets. So we talked a little bit about routine before. Let's get into some NHL news and notes here. I don't know how good that sounds to you guys. But Pierre Lebrun with the news over the weekend, Nashville, which has just been an absolute tire fire all season long, looks like they're going to be in seller mode and then maybe even a rebuild. But Matthias Eckholm apparently is on the block. Four teams mentioned as potential trade partners. The Winnipeg Jets were one of those four. Now, the price is going to be obviously the main sticking point here, but sounds like a first-round pick and then some kind of prospect, and you go from there. Westy, if Nashville comes calling and that's the trade offer on the table with one year this year and another year on his contract still to go, will they off make another big splash this year and go after Mateus Ekholm? That would be, they've got to be interested at the very least, right? And I, I like, are we trying to do? determine whether or not they'll actually pull the trigger sort of thing and actually make a, a good hard charge at them. I wonder, it'd be a, a great shot in the arm. That's for sure. On uh, And on the left side here, but the jets, he is a left side guy. I don't know how much right side at home plays. Right. I so think it would, I think the deal basically hinges on him being able to be Morrissey's partner, like either one of the two moving to their offside. Yeah, and then, then the whole Morrissey conversation is that's maybe a whole nother plates and skates sort of thing here brother. <laughs> that's yeah i wonder i wonder if they're going to be of interest or you know at this point in time do you just really target and look looking more at that right side there but fishing around trying to find a a partner for morrissey to get him to play at a higher level in a more consistent fashion is something i think the team would be interested in yeah, I, I think they'd be interested in I would be surprised because they go back to the division next year that that they would pull this off. But then again, you know, if if the team believes that Logan Stanley, and I'm including Logan Stanley in this, Billy Hainola and Dylan Sandberg are fit on this team. And we all know the one-year contract for um, Bull U. I think that's, that's probably the end of this one this season. Forbert's interesting. If you can re-sign Forbert at a fair price, because I think he's arguably been one of their their best defenseman this year. You've got DeMello there. Um, Poolman's going to be an unrestricted free agent. He's having a rough season. My point to all this is if you believe that those guys are NHLers, it might be time to part with a young one and bring Ekholm in and sort of help that top pairing. Get a top pairing guy here and fill it out with whoever doesn't go the other way. Um, and I don't think it's Sainola or Sandberg. But if it's a first-round pick and it's a prospect, I would imagine they want a forward prospect. Um, but I wonder if you don't include, like, just a D-man going back that could be of the Bull U, could be of the 
the Logan Stanley of the world, the the younger guy. Um, and I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Logan Stanley's a trade chip. I'm just saying, if you're going to package something up with a first round pick, a young forward prospect and a D man that could go over and play, then I think they would look at it and, and make it fit. Um, the, the big question mark is Neil Pionk. Like, what is he asking for? And I had somebody tweet me last night that, well, it's a great trade until he starts asking for $9 million. Well, I don't think he's going to ask for $9 million, but he could legitimately – I thought he'd come in around 4 or 5 I think the way he's playing, he could legitimately ask for 6 maybe even 7 on a long-term deal. So, I mean, if that come at that price for two years and you got Morrissey locked up, then you re-sign a Pionk, uh, you have DeMello um, – I wonder if it's not time to just sort of get Ekholm in here, give up one of your young prospects and a pick and, and solidify that decor. Because as Westy said, I think that could be another place to skate some plates. Um, the defense is, as we talked about the forward lines being sort of a work in progress and see where we're at game 40. That is the big question mark, I think right now with this team. Yeah. And I would even take that maybe a step below and say, Josh Morrissey is the big, I don't know, question mark or just issue moving forward here because Pionk Forbert, I think everyone's really happy with what they've given you on the second pair. It's, you know, surprisingly the top pair that has been the biggest reason for concern moving forward, which is why I th- I think you have to take a serious run at Ekholm here. The cap, it's super manageable. And in a way, you know, the trade for Ekholm can tell you a lot about Josh Morrissey himself as well. Because he hasn't had a good defensive partner for two seasons now. And that would change the second Matthias Ekholm would come over to Winnipeg in a potential deal. So you get a sense of, okay, how does our team stack up as a whole? But how does, like, is Josh Morrissey going to show that he is, you know, maybe not a number one, but a no doubt about it, secondary piece on the top pair? You can kind of solve a lot of your answers. And I don't think the price is all that, all that outlandish either. You know, yes, you have to... You would lose another first-round pick for, I don't know, what is that, the fourth and fifth year, something like that. But the prospect wouldn't be a major one going back the other way. And at the very least, I think if you did get Ekholm, you'd have to say the Jets would be, I don't know, neck and neck with Toronto in terms of, of top team in the north. Or you might even say, hey, you might push them a spot above them and they could find a way to get somebody like Ekholm. And, hey, if in the expansion draft you have to move a guy, you could still flip Ekholm for probably a first round pick right back because there's a bunch of teams that would love to take a guy like that when his cap it is under four mil in a flat cap NHL. Has there ever been a better time for this team to trade a first round pick? Like you got Cole Perfetti, you got Dubois at 22, you got Shifley for three more years, like the middle, whatever happens with Stasny, but you're down the middle, you're, you're set. You've got your high end wingers. And how many more first-round defensemen are you going to wait on? Like, there's never been a better time in my mind to send that first-round pick for something like a piece, like a major piece like an echo. And so, like, normally I would sit here and go, well, no, they, they got to get some centers in this organization. Well, they drafted one and they traded for one. Then you look at the wingers, well, line has gone, and, and you question the right for sure, but you can get that in the second round. And then you've got so many first-round defenseman picks just sitting there, like waiting to mature. So, you know, you're not going to draft another defenseman first round, are you? And now have four guys waiting first-round picks to make the blue line. So I think it's a great time to deal that first-round pick for the Jets. I think it's a good time to – it's a great question to ask, Greg. 
because they, and this is a team that has not hesitated when they felt like they had a decent chance to throw a, into a situation. I don't know if they've ever been poised, as we talked about to start this this uh, version of Skates and Plates, that they, they've never been this. And if you can add some something that's going to be impactful there and, and really truly make Morrissey the top pairing guy with whoever you bring in, oh, baby. Like, right, you're situated really well here. I'm right there with you, man. It's time here to push all in. So let me quickly here, because I don't want to keep you guys too much longer, but let's say the package was, we'll start off with a first-round pick, Christian Veselainen, and then maybe a supplementary piece thrown in there as well on the on the Jets side. Do you make that trade if you're Kevin Cheveldayoff? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, it makes I'll me wonder. Like, I mean, Harkins, Veselainen, yeah. Um, but... It, that's who you just uh, you address that that winger in in your desire in the draft, and you go get that done. Especially with what that would do to the blue line, solidify it. And then you have those all those D men that were I was mentioning. We we're just talking about left hanging over in the off season. If you want to make another deal for a winger or whatever, but yeah, I make that trade. He's got to make sure he's coming side if that's the thought or Morrissey, right? Yeah, yeah, one of the two. Either way, Chevy, see how easy it is. It's it, that's how easy it is. Find a way to get it done. <laughs> all right, and. and- one last one for you guys. The big news of the weekend in the NHL. What did you think of? I'll, I'll start with you, Westy. What did you guys think of the Lake Tahoe games? Oh, now the the, the ice, right? Like I, I tweeted out almost for what we've got with our pond in the back and and stuff. And we've got some ruts, baby. But I, like, who's ever seen guys the level of the NHL? Like refs can skate, right? But they're talking about how about refs never really talk. Guys just just and falling over. You just don't see that. So I kind of, like, they, we saw a little bit of how bad the ruts were, but ice conditions aside, if we may, holy crackers, you're not going to beat that for picturesque, huh? And some of the photos that we've been we've been shown since then, like, it's just as, as, as enchanting and majestic as you could get was that backdrop. Absolute perfection. Yeah, I agree with the backdrop and the setting and everything else. The problem is, is that's why they went there was to do the game during the day and they ended up playing at midnight and the next night. So but it was beautiful, but it's just another NHL colossal. Look, I don't build back yard rinks. I don't know a clue about this, but I saw Darren Drager go, that's why I don't put paint lines in my backyard rink because the sun will melt those lines. It attracts the sun. If Darren Drager knows that, how does the NHL not know that? And maybe they did and just, you know, looked at it and forecasted the weekend would be cloudy. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. It looked amazing. And I would have loved to have seen a full game during that. It's just too bad it turned into just a, a disaster. Now, it wasn't a well, – I shouldn't say disaster because there's no fans there. If there were fans there and you had to play the game at midnight and then you had to tell guys, fans that their game at 2 in the afternoon or 1 in the afternoon is now 7 at night on a Sunday – you got a major problem. So I think they escaped something there with not having fans there. I'm with Westy. It was beautiful. If they could do it again, by all means. Like, that's what makes me think, go to Banff. I know they were yeah. talking that they're trying to get to Lake Louise. That would be amazing at Lake Louise, too, because that 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 scenery there, we all watched the videos on Twitter of the guy skating over the open lake in the mountains, wherever that is, and all over the world. 
So I, I do think it was a mini disaster for them. I, I think it's ridiculous that they're making guys play at midnight. You go to one of the most picturesque places on the earth to play a game, and you do it in the dark. So, but I like that they tried, I guess. Um, you know, the whole thing is the fans. So, like, they do these things because it's there's 80,000 fans at these in the States. And at 100 bucks a ticket, it's like a $10 million gate. I get why they do it. But for it to not be able to be played like that, and then just the, I mean, we're all, <laughs> we used to be a broadcast, you know, to be again. <laughs> but watching Eddie Olchek and the guys, Tariko, try and fill that time, because we've all been there, um, I thought it was hilarious too. So I got a kick out of it. Then I kind of got a little tick, like, what are you guys thinking? But the 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 jest was there in whole. But uh, I don't know. What did you think of it? Like the midnight part of it was just like, you got to be kidding me. No one, you could be playing this in Winnipeg. No one would know. So my my favorite part of the whole thing is that I like to imagine Gary Bettman, you know, after watching four consecutive players and refs fall into ruts during the first period of the Avs game, where he just he turns to the the decision makers and he's like, "Shit, we forgot about the sun. The sun is hot." Like it, it seems like like the main thing they forgot about is the most obvious one of all that. Oh yeah, the sun melts ice. I guess we should have taken that into consideration. So like, it didn't go it didn't go as smoothly obviously as everybody wanted, but I don't know. I, I loved every second of it. Even the out like the, the midnight game to me, it's still like there was still an element of of romance with it, right? Because it's like when it's the stadium games, it, it's just it's so it's so outside of the realm of hockey. But it it still had that feel of wow, these guys are are they at like the gateway ring, right? Like it, it felt like an actual outdoors game for the first time since they started doing these things. So like they they bungled a lot of the main things. I'll 100% give the NHL full credit on actually taking a chance and doing something original. And I, I love the suggestion you had. Go to Banff, go to Lake Louise, do it out there in the mountains. The weather should be a lot more cooperative. I, I think there is an element, uh, I think they might have something here as opposed to the stadium games that, this kind of a setting is the most ideal if you're going to go outdoors and try and play an NHL game there. Yeah, I, I don't know how many fans would be able to cram in, that's uh, cram in there, maybe five, ten thousand, 10,000, but, man, it'd be beautiful. I think that's the cool thing. that, And you could sell the tickets for whatever, right, if you're yeah, worried about it. Yeah. would be really neat to see those sort of like just some level of bleachers around there and there's only 3,000 people or 5,000 people watching it. That would sort of add to the awesomeness of it to me from a, a broadcasting standpoint and TV standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Field of Dreams it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see who of any of us would know anybody that can afford a ticket to a game in Lake Louise with only 3,000 fans. Because the ticket would have to be 8K, probably. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a future problem. We'll worry about that one a little bit later. <laughs> but you know what? It, I've kept you guys too long. I'm sorry. I know JT's got a little one. Probably waiting around somewhere downstairs, and Westy's got a, a new Breaking Bad show to get to, so we'll let you guys go here. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining us. I guess I, we'll start with you, JT. Just let us know. Do you guys have any plans for the next week, couple weeks, the future? Just what, what do you guys no, have? I'm, I know you guys have uh, known me to lie about this for years, so just gonna take this time, this opportunity to get back in shape and looking forward to it and sort of do that and walk the dog and and. You know, I think Wesley tweeted out when one door closes, another one opens. So spending a lot of time with the, the baby boy and, and taking advantage of that, like a real opportunity here, unfortunately, um, to just do some more things like that. So that's what I'm looking forward to, spending more time with family, getting back in shape. And maybe if we do surface again, you, you hopefully don't recognize me because I'm so svelte. <laughs> yeah, I can <laughs> let the people present themselves and 
and onward and upward, fellas. And it's, I, I tell you, for the um, officialness of this, it was an absolute pleasure. And we were so lucky. Like every single day we left the studio and I'd drive by a, you know, different sites going on or seeing what other people were doing for the living. And like to talk about sports and get paid for it for 10 years for, for us there for however long we did it, man. It was so much fun. It's such an honor to do it with you guys. and love you guys. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I just want to kick in on that, too, because I, I called you guys after and made this clone, but I want to publicly do it as well. I know how hard it is when you have a show for that long to have a new guy come in, and you guys did it a couple of times, but you guys made it seamless, and, and the four and a half years just flew by for me, and I had an absolute blast. So I appreciate that, and I, and I appreciate all the listeners who tuned in as well. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I'll tell you what, this kind of felt like a therapy session, too, in a way. You have your... <laughs> The world turned upside down and hey it's a little bit of normalcy back in our lives we'll have to find a way to even if it's not on on this but just find a way to maybe once a week just have a a 60 minute you know whether it's jets talk or whatever it is a little therapy session and we'll find a way to get through this right i should add in i'm finally going to get a haircut too so that's positive Hey, looking more and more like Jim Morrison. Man. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know him person, but I'm feeling like I'm probably at the end too. So it'll be good to get a haircut and shake. <laughs> well, on that note, Jim Toth, Troy Westwood, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, guys. Take Thanks, man. Now, before we wrap up, actually, I want to get to this. Any of you guys want to win a brand new Jets jersey? Yeah, I thought so. So the big bosses at the Hockey Podcast Network have a jersey contest giveaway that we're starting. It's underway right now, so I'll tell you guys how you can win one. It's super simple. All you have to do is head to Twitter, follow my podcast at SkatesPlatesPod, P-O-D, and also follow at HockeyPodNet. So follow those two accounts, and then all you have to do is retweet a post from the Skates and Plates account that has the jersey giveaway on it. It'll have a picture of a Jets jersey, all the details, and that's it. You just got to do that, and you'll be entered into the draw, the show with the most retweets wins. So not if, but when we pull off the W, one of you lucky listeners will win a brand new Winnipeg Jets jersey. So please, please find a way. I mean, I guess this is the ultimate help me, help you sort of a situation there. So make sure you guys do that as well. We're back with a new one for you on Friday. Just one game for the Jets. A bit, a bit of time off here. So we'll break that one down Thursday night, the first time they play the Montreal Canadiens this season. We'll dive into all the big plays, the big moments of that game, break it down for you. And also a brand new interview coming as well. A huge foodie talk for beer fans out there. We've got our first brewery interview on tap. Haha. <laughs> The interview will be better than that past joke, I promise. But that's coming up on Friday's episode. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Skates and Plates on the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm Brandon Rewicki. Until then, we'll talk to you guys soon. Peace.